Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. I'm down to try a million different programs. I mean, here's the thing, y'all. I don't know if it's healthy for anybody to die on any marketing hills because marketing is always changing. Like a couple years ago, the TikTok algorithm wasn't a thing, right? And now it is. Google's algorithm has changed an immense amount over the last few years and has certainly changed an immense amount since I started my career. What's up, Tracy? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I want to dive in for people who don't know. How did you get into marketing? I think you have a cool story about how you came from like a small town and then realized <laughs> this whole world of marketing and tech and stuff like that. I didn't realize a whole world of marketing. I came from a smaller town in East Texas, but it is the biggest town in East Texas. So like oh, that's we important. We have the world's <laughs> third largest fire hydrant, um, which is my favorite fun fact about my hometown. Um, I grew up reading a lot. I was, I was always a writer and a reader, um, got really into magazines when I was young and then would edit starting around nine. I started editing issues of Vogue and then later Teen Vogue came out. So I started editing those, had lots of feedback for those folks. And around that time was when I had decided that I was going to become the editor in chief of Vogue. I was very obsessed with it. <laughs> and so like that was just always my, my dream and goal. Even when I got to college, my sorority sisters, I was like, you know, when you first join a sorority, I guess when we did, they asked, you know, what's everyone's dream job? And mine was very clear, editor-in-chief of Vogue. Uh, and all of my friends still remember that. So I did what you do when you want to work for magazines like that. Um, got an internship in New York City, um, working for Elle magazine. Worked there for a couple months unpaid, as you do or as you did then. Uh, and I was lucky to land a job at a fashion tech company. The company was called Shopteeks, and it was the first fashion company to ever go through Y Combinator, which is a tech accelerator. So I got a really good kind of inside look into the way that tech companies work in, in general and, and the way that startups work. I was writing their content though still then. I was running kind of a magazine for them. I was hired specifically because I had worked at Elle and they wanted, you know, this fashion news coverage. Um, so, was, you know, attending fashion shows, all of that jazz. Uh, and I did all of that for a couple of years. And honestly, I just got really tired of it. I don't think I was never meant to be the editor in chief of Vogue because I got really tired of selling little black dresses and like mascara to women. I just, it just wasn't very interesting to write about. And I had a friend at the time who worked over at Mashable and she got me a fellowship over there, which was a paid job about three days a week. And I dove in over there, was also their retail reporter though. So still writing about fashion, uh, fashion and beauty companies, but I was really writing about them uh, in terms of their intersection with technology, which basically was how they were selling online at the time. And then I jumped from journalism. I uh, wanted to move back to Austin, Texas, and got uh, a job at Big Commerce, which uh, was, is a you know rival or competitor to Shopify, and joined their company. They they were stoked about the fashion background, about the focus on retail for a really long time, and 
yeah, that was how I ended up in tech and SaaS. It was also shocked though, because the tech com- tech industry pays a whole heck of a lot more than journalism was at the time. So that was a very pleasant surprise. I love it. I love the story about you editing magazines as a kid. That's, uh, that's super funny. I also wrote a magazine as a kid, distributed it to all my neighbors, detailed the ongoings of the neighborhood cats. You know who also did that? I think Anne Hadley. I spoke to her and she oh, said really? she used to like write like a, a weekly like written newsletter to her yes. whole her neighbors. It's we'll so go to the library, make copies, staple them all together, bring them to everyone's house. I love it. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about a topic you're really passionate about right now um, since the economic downturn and how like teams are becoming scarce. But you talk about content repurposing and especially content repurposing at a bigger company. So how do you think about delivering content repurposing? How do you think about actually going about repurposing content, especially like a big company like Clavia? Content repurposing is not a new topic. And for anyone listening right now, I don't want you to be like, cool, I'm just going to not pay attention now because you're like, I've heard everything that there is to hear about content repurposing, which is fair. There are really strong economic headwinds against us right now. A lot of folks in the tech industry have been laid off. A lot of folks in content have been laid off. And content repurposing for me has been one of the fastest, most efficient keys to unlocking true growth in, in my career in terms of content marketing. Um, a little bit of a backstory here. You know, I, I burned out when I was over uh, at BigCommerce and left uh, content specifically and went to lead uh, marketing organizations, which is really where understanding how effective uh, content repurposing can be kind of, kind of came from, though we were doing some content repurposing over um, at BigCommerce too. And I say that because burnout, um, I mean, common a lot of, across a lot of different types of workers, but I do find a lot of content folks, content marketers uh, burn out quite a bit, especially at larger organizations, because you're often treated as a service organization, which means request in, piece of content out. Um, and that's that's the way your life goes. And that can be really stressful, especially when bandwidth isn't thought about, when capacity isn't uh, respected, when things are urgent, all of that jazz. So content repurposing can be really, really helpful here for folks. Um, You can, I mean, just produce far more. You can produce far more formats, but also produce less content uh, at the same time. So the way I think about it for larger organizations, the way I like to run it um, starts for me with my team and organization. So you'd need to do this for your own with what our goals and our KPIs are. I, at Clavio right now, for instance, the only real distribution channel I have any type of control over is SEO, right? SEO for the blog. Um, and SEO is, in my opinion, it's a distribution channel. So that's the only one that I, that I really have control over. But my team services pretty much every other team in terms of like their distribution needs. So that's the lifecycle team, the social team, um, our ABM team, our mid-market team, our SMS team, a lot of folks need a lot of different types of content. So we produce content. I have kind of a list of content triggers. So things that help me know and understand what makes a piece of content a priority over something else. Those triggers start with, you know, is this a product feature or a product update or some type of partnership that's really important to get into market that makes it a really high priority. SEO is like number four in there. There's only about seven of them. And then the way that I ultimately weigh these 
I go through and check which of these have which of these triggers and the ones that get the highest scores go first. I always try to back stuff into an SEO need. And then our goal is for every single piece of content, not every, for like 90% of of our pieces, we're trying to produce a very long form, in-depth, best content on the internet on a given topic that we can possibly find or on a topic that, that we're trying to target. For me, best content on the internet typically means that we are pulling in at least three examples of other of brands that are doing this well for our target market, ideally even more. Ideally, we are interviewing folks, um, not just like sending out questionnaires and surveys that so we do that as well, but like really getting on the phone and interviewing folks so that we can understand how to put this content together because, you know, content people often aren't experts in the thing that they're writing about, right? They're, they're great researchers and they can certainly put stories together and ways of thinking together. So you build that long form piece of content for the blog, which then has like SEO as a distribution channel. And then from there, you back into repurposing. So that's where you start pulling things apart. For the most part, right now at Clavio, we will turn most of our long form blogs into long form white papers in horizontal format, which helps us to turn those into webinars really easily in the case that we need them. We will then also pull out specific interviews with customers to return those into case studies with our customer advocacy team. Case studies are both public and then also turn into gated assets. Uh, We will then also pull out specific sections of the long form blog into shorter one pagers, typically for our ABM team, anywhere we're talking about a specific product feature that helps somebody do something specific. So pretty much every one of our pieces turns into about five plus additional gated assets after that to be used across a variety of other sections in the funnel. I love that. I also love the, I mean, obviously it's just been a thing for like personal brands to know that repurposing does it. But I also love that like, you're, I mean, you only really have one distribution channel. So I think at the top of your mind is like how like that is your number one KPI is like, I need to improve SEO. I need to improve certain keywords Like you have to stick to your KPI. But at the same time, it's like, there's a lot of tasks that you, that get going on that are like, Oh, I need this one pager to go sell this thing. Or I need this like thing to do this. And like, right. if you can shell off things that are not as high priority to your goal, and repurpose it, it makes life more easier so you can go and focus on SEO and stuff like Yeah, I mean, some of the ways we do this too is we only publish two pieces of content at the most a week. Um, and that is because every single piece of content we publish is really long. So we're publishing a lot of content. And then of course we are actively repurposing. So we use a lot of templates. We fill out briefs quite a bit. And then of course we are working pretty far ahead in terms of our schedule. Like one of my writers today, by the end of this week, will have her draft in for a piece that's going to go live in mid-October. And that's super important for us because we need to send that through an e- a strategy review process, an editing process. And then if we are going to turn any portion of that into a white paper, we need to make sure that that is into our design team at least two weeks ahead of time. And it is my goal, I don't know if we'll be able to do it this year, but it is my goal for us to be getting stuff into our design team a month ahead of time. A lot of different reasons for that. One is being nice. Design is hard and design is also a service organization. So even more so 
than content teams are where like we do have a distribution channel. We do have specific goals. We have some strategy that uh, quite a bit of strategy that we can really lean into to help lessen a lot of our workload and work smarter. A lot of design teams don't have that, right? People are putting requests in and they expect a perfectly designed asset out in 12 hours, which is just like absolutely nuts. When we get our request in at least two weeks ahead of time, ideally four weeks, again, we'll be working towards that. It just creates better relationships, right? We're building internal trust. People like working with us. People will prioritize our projects because we have shown them that that proper respect and making sure that, you know, we understand how they work and, and how important their work is. That is super important to the entire repurposing process because at a lot of organizations, larger organizations especially, folks have worked with content teams before, but probably haven't repurposed content, at least not in this way before. A lot of people at larger organizations think that like the content request that they put in is a perfect, unique baby content. And like, it needs to be like started from scratch. Um, and that is just rarely the case. Typically, any large organization is already going to have quite a bit of content on any given topic. For your content team, super important to never start from scratch or start from scratch as infrequently as possible. And then, of course, really work to build internal trust with all of these different teams who request content and properly explain the, the repurposing process to them. For instance, at every lar larger organization I've been at, I've gotten pushback from folks about turning long form ungated content into gated content. And the main, the main pushback I get is why would anyone read the gated asset if you have it ungated on, like on the blog? They, that's also usually accompanied with no one reads long form. A lot of people are against long form. No one reads long form. I don't want a long form white paper. I don't even know why we're doing long form blogs. I don't like that stuff. Whew. A lot of opinions. Also a lot of opinions about themselves and not necessarily the target market. Hmm. However, those people are not wrong. People do not read long form content. Even Google knows this. Uh, people scan it. Uh, so it is really important to have the right bullet points in there, the right header tags, pull quotes, things that ultimately help people scan, a table of contents, all of that jazz. And then to the point on like, do why would somebody download something that is avail available for free on the internet. Well, because it's long and it's on a blog and that is hard to read. And if it is a topic that they are interested in or want to share with others, it's often really nice to download that, that piece of content, which then often comes to you in a more designed way, right? Like our designers right now are making our long form blogs like mind-blowingly beautiful in the gated assets they're turning them into. It's a far better reading experience than it is on our blog because we just can't, you know, we can't customize the UX every single time that we do something. Even then though, I will say this, when I was over at BigCommerce, our amazing developer uh, or one of our amazing developers was able to custom code a widget into WordPress. That was the CMS we used there at, at the time to turn any blog post that we wanted into a downloadable asset with a click of a button. And all it did was if we turned that on, it would have a little pop-up that's like, do you want to download this blog, whatever. And the PDF that you got wasn't highly designed. It was just like the name of the article, the image, and then all of the content, right? And we still saw that 2% 
of people coming to the blog were downloading those content assets. And we were driving a million people to the site or to the blog specifically every month. So we were getting an insane amount of downloads. And then of course, anybody who came in as a lead, we were putting them into lead to NQL flows and working to drive back to revenue. And we could very easily track all of those numbers back in terms of who came in as a lead originally was ultimately influenced by content and then later turned into a customer. All of this super helpful and important because in economic, in times of economic downturn, the teams, especially the marketing teams that can prove that they are driving revenue for the organization are the marketing teams that are not going to be laid off. Okay, so content repurposing, you need to, you you have all these assets there. So how do you keep those assets like structured so you know like, okay, if I'm talking about email marketing, for example, and it's a specific thing about email, I can go find five assets that have talked about it before. Like what is like the, the process of finding the, like organizing structure? Yeah. Oh, that's a really great question. Right now it's, it's Google drive and it's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we also use, so I will say I use our, our Google drive quite a bit. We also have something um, called a content repository, which we have in uh, a Google sheets format. It has the name of every asset, a link to that asset, what type of asset it is. So I'll say blog, gated asset, deck, webinar, like whatever. The region it applies to, the audience, like like the segment it applies to, so like small business, mid-market, entrepreneur. Um, We also usually have the last time that it was updated in there, uh, key topics and keywords. So someone can just go in there and search by like, email marketing or SMS marketing or segmentation. And then we also include in the case that it has a deck version to it, um, which is really important for content repurposing. Also, I'll talk about that in a sec, but that link is then there too, so that they could find both the gated asset version as well as the deck version. Deck version version is super important for partner marketing. They can then make copies of those decks, share them over with partners who can then co-brand those decks and use those as a co-brandable assets. I mean, the Google Drive, I think everybody, I've never met like a marketing team that was that <laughs> structured anyway. Even big The content ones. repository is good. I personally don't love that it's in a Google Sheet. It feels like it could be in a better tool or software. I'm trying to think. There was a tool that I used at BigCommerce that I really liked that like kind of kept things updated. But here's the thing. Those tools then have like a bell on them where it's like remind me after three months and then you have to like go in and verify all the stuff again and like nah i like that's just i get why that's there but that that's i don't know a content repository as everyone knows every marketing tool out there's biggest competitor is excel and google sheets and right now google sheets is winning the content repository game I think it's winning, like, even the data game, too. It's like, yeah. as much as people want to, like, look at Tableau, they go and look in the Google Sheet to go. Exactly. Like, yeah. a pivot table is really easy to make. What are some challenges, like, with content repurposing, like, with the big team? Like, what are some challenges you face? Um, yeah, I mean, the time it takes is a really big one. We have set expectations with our teams that we cannot produce content, especially anything that um, includes repurposed gated assets in under six weeks. Uh, We typically need eight weeks. And we, as of today, have our content planned out through the end of January right now. And that, and we are just working as hard as we can to get as far ahead as possible because 
for large organizations, not only do you need to send things through design and they need at least two weeks, keep in mind they have their own capacity and bandwidth issues. And so they might actually need more time than that. So design needs at least two weeks. Legal might need two weeks or more. Um, once you start getting things into gated assets and they start being used um, with performance marketing or paid teams, you typically need anyone featured in those assets to give you legal approval. Again, this is for those larger companies out there. That takes quite a while. Any type of proprietary data you're going to need to pull, there's going to be quite a bit of working with your data team or running surveys, um, any type of partner work you're going to do. I like to do partner work both before and after a piece goes live, trying to create campaigns in a box, especially for our larger launches where we preview you know, our top tier partners on the content we're going to be publishing, which means you need to have your content ready in order to preview it with them, uh, and then asking them for those that like it, agree with it, whatever, if they would also write a corresponding blog post to go live on that same day so that it becomes a little bit more of like an industry-wide campaign rather than just your own company. Helps with SEO as well, but ultimately just helps to drive a lot more traffic to something on the day that it goes live and makes partners feel special. You can't do that if your content isn't ready at least two weeks, if not more ahead, because partners need time to create their own content. So one of the biggest challenges with this is getting far ahead. Anything that becomes an urgent request, and urgent means that somebody wants it in six weeks or less, gets no repurposing love. Or if it does, all of its content repurposing in, in the form of gated assets is going to come months after the piece goes live on the blog itself. I think the difference of like working at like a small and big company is it's like big companies like have the ability to move fast, but don't have the resources needed to do all this like nice stuff and have the tools to be able to like analyze things, but they can go put out content really fast. But then right. big companies, you have five layers of bread tape before you can produce anything like an ad. Oh, yeah. yeah. So every like, one of our content pieces right now has at least five corresponding tickets across other organizations. It is a pain in the butt. I'm also trying to convince our team to move off of our existing project management tool because I think things would be better in another one, but I don't want to name it. It's fine. That's a other, that's a whole other conversation, but yes, large organizations doing content marketing well requires you to work well with others, earn that respect and that trust. And that typically means following and even doing better than their requested SLA time. So that service level agreement times which is typically two weeks or more for almost every single team. So again, when we get a request from, say, our mid-market team for a piece of content, we are very clear with them that, one, this needs to be at least two months out, at least eight weeks, and that's if we were to start on it today. And two, depending on what they're requesting, customers or agencies or whomever in the legal process could shut us down. <laughs> That's a very real thing. Content marketing is chaos, y'all. There's always a level of chaos that is happening. And it is because things can fall through and fall apart at the last minute for a million different reasons. One of the really big ones is legal. And you just have to be prepared for that. Another reason why the planning part, very important. Always plan ahead, as far ahead as you can. Yeah, I remember the the legal, the parts of it where you can go through all these reviews to do amazing marketing campaign and the last person who 
rejects it as legal and then you play, spend like a month planning doing it um that's why I, I think what you're saying of like looping in teams earlier to the process so you don't have to do too much upfront work and you can get them to like at least look at things before yeah like quicker well, and so it's yeah. yeah so it's looping teams in earlier it is also I have found that one of the things that has benefited me the most in my content marketing career is being nice. And like, like, again, it's building trust. It is listening to people. Like, I mean, I have spent a lot of time on calls with our legal team. I did it over at BitCommerce. I do it at Clavio with, with all of our teams, understanding how their work gets done. Um, you know, listening to that, like good complaining of things, right. Really working to make sure that my team is following the right processes, whatever it might be. And all of that helps a ton when it comes down to the wire. And it is like one person or one department between like the launch of this thing you've been working on for a while and not people are far more willing to be helpful in those moments. If they like you, if they trust you work now to, to, to build that trust. So like plant the seeds now to sow later. It's very important. Yeah. I love that. A lot of, a lot of like, like marketing, especially cause I was an ops. Like a lot of it is just like, like not even, like getting on a call with a person to have coffee with them because like you get to know them as a human. And then later they, they know when you have a request, like, Oh, Tracy's like hitting me up for this request. Like, okay, right. we, we were friends. Like they'll shoot right. off on Tracy. Like, and, and, and she doesn't hit me up often like this. Like if she's saying it, it's urgent, it, like she must be really getting pressure or like what, uh, you know, like all of us naturally, because we're humans, like psychology and philosophy come into play in marketing, not just in marketing to consumers, like in figuring out how to work with an internal teams, all of us are nicer to people that we like, to people that we trust, to people who don't hit us up often to do things for them, right? Like I go out of my way a lot for my internal team to help people do things. I mean, for a lot of reasons. One, I don't mind it. And two, because I know if I need something in the future, like I am more seen as someone who gives far more often than I take, right? So when I do need to take, it's going to be far easier for me to get the things that, that I need and want out of those situations than if I hadn't done the work prior to that to build the relationship. It's funny you say that because like what you're saying like, describes like good content marketing in general, like just give as much as value as you can. And then eventually like people will see that you've created this path for them to buy and like it's just right, like right right yes that and there's technical seo that comes involved but yes yeah technical <laughs> seo i mean i mean i mean always you have to play the game of the the platform and ranking for certain words and um yeah, seo is just a game that i'm i probably pick your brain sometime about technical yeah, seo because that's it. a new game that's a, that's a different game to play uh, it's like algorithms and like on like social platforms everything's like a different way you have to like frame it and there's ways to yeah. do it like everything is so but dangerous I, all of us just optimizing our stuff for another company's algorithm yeah that i is mean the but, world we live in <laughs> what is a um a marketing hill you would die on like what are some some things you truly uh, believe in content marketing that you will shout from the rooftop I mean, honestly, there, there's probably not a lot of hills I would die on. 
in the marketing space and certainly not even the content marketing space. Things always depend. I mean, I have been in this, I've been doing this role or this kind of specific job for almost 12 years now. It always depends. My answer to anyone is very rarely no. I am just always trying to think through how to take someone's idea and ultimately what it is that they need and make it something that can be findable on Google or not recommending things that re- recommending other routes for them if that can't be the case. So yeah, I, I don't know if there's many of a die. I'm down to try a million different programs. I mean, here's the thing, y'all. I don't know if it's healthy for anybody to die on any marketing hills because marketing is always changing. Like a couple of years ago, the TikTok algorithm wasn't a thing, right? And now it is. Google's algorithm has changed an immense amount over the last few years and has certainly changed an immense amount since I started my career. I actually got the my very first job out of college was at a content farm called Demand Media, which was just crushed with one of Google's algorithm updates about, was it the year that I joined? It might have been the next one. But marketing is just always changing. Of course, there are like baselines about like consumer or just human psychology and philosophy that apply. And those things are super important, right? Like building trust really matters. Telling great stories really matters. Um, that includes both internally and for your customer base and the prospects you want to go after. But I'm a very gray person, right? I, I don't fall into a lot of extremes. I'm very down to try stuff as long as it follows the like baselines and principles of, of what I know and believe both about psychology, philosophy, SEO in general, because, because there yeah. are some technical rules that are important. Yeah. I agree with the, the statement of like, for me, I have strong marketing opinions and, but I'm always open to like hearing new opinions that could yeah. change that opinion. So like, I'm like, we'll be like strong, like let's do this until someone comes and says, Hey, this and I'm like, oh, wait, maybe I was thinking this wrong the whole time. So I think like for yeah. me, it is like a little gray area. It's like, yeah, it does. De- a lot of things do depend, but also like a lot of marketing pet opinions are like really specific to industry, to what that person does, like to what their background is. Like, cause I could say like, you should be on TikTok, but that could be for like D to C brands that have low like a cheap price and impulse buy but if you're like a a car brand maybe you should not be doing that so it's like these little like nuanced right. things where like you're though i would love really... to see car brands on tiktok yeah That'd be great. <laughs> i know why aren't they on their tiktok that's um yeah. i mean i will say this is why so i have you know my contentment newsletter and i have this section that i include in there all the time which is like you do you like take this advice to heart or take it with a grain of salt. Like you always, when taking advice from people on the internet need to couch it in and understand that they may not be giving you the full context of where that advice and experience comes from. Not everything applies to everyone. In fact, very little applies to everyone. Almost everything is specific to a certain context a certain experience um, that that includes advice, marketing hills, uh, marketing shoulds or shouldn'ts, all of that jazz. I mean, Adam always says this too. It's like a lot of people, when they reverse engineering something, they forget the main point of it is that the why and like the goal behind like why someone was actually doing that thing. Like it might've right. worked for them because 
they were like a first mover or might have worked for them because like they their goal for that was like conversions not like seo for example like it could be right. like there's a lot of things behind the scenes that you're you're missing context of like the why behind why someone is doing some sort of action so it's like yes it might be a great idea for your business but it also might not fit your your current marketing goal so right. don't just do well, it i mean Maybe this is a hill I'd die on. I don't know. But like one of the things I find myself saying often is like, man, if people from the beginning of my career to now, because it still goes on every day, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me to like just go do the HubSpot content marketing strategy, I'd be so freaking wealthy. It is it is one of the le- my least favorite things that that I hear. And I continue to hear it at every organization I have been at. It's like, well, let's just go do it, what HubSpot did. And y'all, HubSpot literally started inbound marketing. They got so much benefit from it because they were some of the first to ever do it. You cannot today replicate what HubSpot did and you wouldn't want to. It's far too much work, far too much content. Their early content was far shorter form. So they're even going through their catalog, updating and consolidating and expanding. So yeah, that's... That's no, I love that. I love that. I love the, I love the scent. Like when people say like, Hey, go execute this strategy or like go do morning brews referral strategy, <laughs> like, or go do like, it's, you have to, like, they were the first to do that for like newsletters as well. Like, doesn't mean it's going to work for newsletters now. Like you were the, they HubSpot was the first to do content, like content marketing at scale really well. And they had a five year to 10 year head start at everybody. Yes. So it's like, you means you got to catch up 10 years of content to get even, and they've really, and the algorithm has already learned that their content is great. So. Yeah. The algorithm's far ahead on it. They have an insane amount of backlinks that you're not going to be able to get, at least not for cheap, not without a lot of work. Like it is, it is not the right way to go <laughs> for any no, business no. or organization now, but it is often touted by execs and, and others, you know, folks who you know aren't as um, in the know on content marketing as, as, oh, like we can just go copy what that best strategy was. This, this is the thing about advice on the internet, though, too, is like typically once something becomes a best practice, it's not going to work anymore. <laughs> like it was a best practice. Uh, because the early adopters were able to get ahead of it and it worked really well for them. I mean, this is even the story with Facebook, right? People in the early days of Facebook advertising, I remember interviewing e-commerce folks. I mean, it was turning people into millionaires almost overnight. It was insane. And then once people heard about it and started using it more, then the platform became saturated. Competition, uh, you know, went crazy. Prices went up and then it became like less of a millionaire game and more of like the game that, that we know now, which it can still be highly effective, but it's not what it was in those early days. Not, not yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the key right there. I think you're, I mean, you're saying it like, I always say that to people, like, if someone is telling you it's a be- best practice, that means, like, you should start thinking about something very different because that yeah. means tons of people are already doing it today. Exactly. Like, yeah, tons of people are doing it. That means you're not standing out at all in this right. market. I mean, I will caveat this with best practices are really good places to start, right? Like, if your organization isn't, like – 
like take landing page best practices, right? There's a lot of good advice in there. Important to have CTAs above the fold, for instance, right? Like there, you can go and look at what a lot of other sites are doing or a lot of other brands are doing and get really good insights for like the baseline things you should build, but then you should be testing and iterating on top of that to find what ultimately works really well for you. So best practices are like where you start. They're a good foundation to build, to get like baseline metrics and numbers that you can then improve upon, but they should not be like when you need an innovative idea, you shouldn't be going to best practices. What you said is great too. And I also say to people like, don't go like look at something in like an industry where people are doing the same thing as you go look at what a D to C brand is doing. If you're SaaS and go look how reverse engineer what they're doing and see if it will work. And the SaaS place. Try it from other places because a lot of people in the SaaS world are just copying other SaaS brands. Like they don't go look yeah. at yeah. another industry. They don't go look what the car industry is doing or the entertainment industry is doing. They just focused on what SaaS is doing and SaaS best practices. And that I agree, best practices are great to just reverse engineer and see why things worked and then you can try it for yourself. Take the learnings, right? Yeah. Like that's what you're looking for is taking the learnings and then applying them in a little bit of a different way. Ideally yeah. to, to get better results. What's something that is up and coming in content marketing that a lot of people just don't think about? doing oh content ai look like i i haven't tested ai tools out too much but man i know a lot of content folks in my industry at my level who are testing these tools out who are getting better with them who are impressed at how quickly that like how how quickly it's growing i mean y'all Content AI stuff is like the perfect tool to use for repurposing. If you need to like do like small tweaks on stuff or like use an existing piece of content to churn out a variety of other pieces of content, like the repurposing aspects to it are endless. So yeah, content repurposing, I mean, not content repurposing, content AI, I think it scares a lot of content marketers and writers because it feels like it could take your job, for instance, but I I think it's going to be a a really cool, valuable tool in the future to help folks just be more efficient um, and effective. It's always, I mean, try. I mean, that's what you said that before. It's just all about testing, trying new things. And you, I mean, you've said it yourself. You're always into just doing, like, there's no gray, like, you're not negative on content AI and you're not positive about it. You just will try it if it works, it doesn't work, or if it doesn't work for your your use cases. Yeah, if it doesn't work for me right now, maybe it'll work in the future. Like you never know. Content marketing and social media have always been closely related disciplines, I would say. And I am seeing, you know, content marketers, for instance, have gotten a lot more control over like YouTube channels historically, because again, once you start producing longer form content, it's typically the content marketers that folks pull in. I'm seeing the same thing with TikTok content marketers being asked to do more TikTok stuff, more speaking, talking head stuff. Some of these things that like might be more associated with like, I don't like broadcast or, or media. In fact, there is a big conversation in the content marketing industry right now around running content marketing organizations as media organizations, which 
I am not a fan of um, in most cases. And that is because until content marketing, a content marketing organization at any company can prove their value, can prove that they're driving revenue for the business on a consistent basis. So that is driving a lot of organic search traffic, getting a lot of content downloads, turning those downloads in into MQLs and, and into revenue. And until that can happen, your team can't really focus on those really big, more media plays, uh, more brand plays, because your team is is kind of at risk of being cut. As, again, especially in economic downturns, uh, any organization any organization at any company is in is at risk of being cut if you can't track back to revenue. Once you do build that like performance engine on a content marketing team, then heck yeah, go focus on building a media organization on top of it to drive even more top of funnel. I've just found that most tech organizations, B2B content marketing organizations uh, never really get that performance foundation down because building a media company like sounds cooler and more exciting, uh, but keeping your jobs really exciting too, you know, and like proving revenue <laughs> too. So it's, it's not a like one or the other. It's, it's in my mind, the first thing you need to do is build that foundation. And then you can always add on the the media side after. And I also think they're like, they have the same discipline, but they run totally like differently. Like if you want to like, if you run a media company, it's, it's run that the, the objectives are different. Like a content marketing team has way more like different objectives. Like you say like SEO, like a media company might not think about SEO that much right? You, or like servicing, like sales reps or servicing like partnership team, like they care less about media companies and more about just like putting content out there and being like right. controlling a narrative. It's not all the right. little stuff. Media companies also monetize through ad revenue, right? Mm. And like, and beta and, and content marketing teams don't now, now you could do that. Um, and, and some organizations have like tried to move in, in that direction, you know, well, I mean, I guess maybe not. HubSpot bought the hustle and, you know, the hustle used to have a really strong ad arm, but, you know, HubSpot let go of all of those people because it doesn't want to advertise anybody else. It's, it's their advertising tool, right? So I haven't seen any organizations be able to execute on it. The I mean, at the end of the day, like all of these organizations, any organization is a business that needs to drive money and try to strive for profitability in the model that you choose has to uh, have revenue baked into it and backed into it. No, I, I love it. I think I just, I've just been in the room of been marketing ops and I've heard multiple conversations of like, how do we tie back revenue? How do we tie back revenue? And the first team that they think should go are like the ones that don't tie back revenue, even though like if the, in the long term that team probably isn't the most like effective team like right, um, right. for the company right. but they just look at okay did that piece of content do that no okay bye content team yeah like, uh, yeah yep. i mean people a lot of people think again this goes back to like psychology and philosophy a lot of people like to use data to make decisions because they feel like it removes the emotions out of it especially when making hard decisions like which teams to let go of right People like feel better if there's, you know, a very strong data backed reason behind it. And so like knowing that 
is powerful for you as a content person or as any marketer that like you need to be able to show contribution to the bottom line. And if you can't do that now, that's okay. But you want to start building a plan for that. Start talking to folks about it, right? Start figuring out how you can turn more of your content into content that drives leads. Some of that could even just start with how many like MQLs are we driving through the content? How many leads are we getting through the content and tracking that on a regular basis and showing improvement over time? Even that can help. I mean, that doesn't get you all the way down to revenue, but it's, um, it's, it's really important because in times like these, organizations may have to make hard decisions and the, the teams that, that don't have that data are often the, the first on the chopping block, unfortunately. Even to your point, uh, <laughs> Not, not rightfully so a lot of the times, because when you cut those teams, a lot of those teams are driving brand awareness, right? And, and things at, at the top of the funnel, and it can be bad to cut them and lose all, all of that top of funnel traffic. So again, these decisions are hard. I don't run a company. I'll say that I, like, I've never been a CEO. I've never had to make layoff decisions. I just know I'm a little privy to how some of those decisions get made. And as a result, very protective for myself and my team to make sure we never have to be part of that uh, at, at any organization I'm at. The key is like knowing, I mean, we talked about this earlier, like knowing how people do make decisions in the company right. and baking in your strategy to how people do things at the company. That's just how you have to operate. Even if you have a grandiose idea, if someone says that you're not producing revenue and you get cut, like you have to figure out a way to do it. Otherwise you're going to get cut. Like it's a hard thing to make, but that's what the company, op- how they operate. So you can't change that usually. Um, last question. Yeah. <laughs> last, last thing I have for you is how, where can people find you? I know you have an awesome newsletter. Um, where can yeah, people find Yeah, yeah. I have a newsletter called Contentment um, through Workweek. Uh, but you can find me on, on Twitter. So I'm at Traceball. Um, I have the link to Contentment on there. It publishes you know, once a week, really targeted at uh, content marketers, but also just leaders who, who oversee content teams on you know, how to think through content marketing processes, um, efficiencies, effectiveness uh, to prove that your content's tracking back to revenue, but ultimately to help teams not burn out. Um, Because I have been on teams that burn out uh, and it is not fun. And there's a lot of um, really great process and and philosophies that that you can put into play that will make sure or not make sure will help that not happen. Everyone individually is also responsible for maintaining their own not burned outness and closing your computer at the end of the day. So processes just help. They aren't, they aren't the only thing. I mean, it's good for you as a leader to show the ways that you are doing this, which simply like having that seven checklist way of like approving a piece of content is like one way to just avoid someone not overloading themselves with a piece of content that's not high priority and needs to be done now. So Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I tell I tell people at every company I've been at, like, you can request as much content as you want, but there's no guarantee you're going to get yeses on on us picking it up. Like, request away, <laughs> and we will address it, and we will look into it. Um, but a request is not an immediate yes. It does not mean something's going to get produced. Well, this has been great. Thank you for joining. Um, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And I should have learned a lot about like how paralleled um, content marketing and marketing ops is because it sounds a lot the same of like request mania. 
request maybe. Yes. Well, I mean, so. I, I actually ended up when I was at Big Commerce, um, I ended up as like the marketing team's project manager because content is often so central to a marketing organization. And I was the one who knew the most about what content had been created and how to avoid, you know, duplicate content. And ultimately that somehow led to me managing 50 people in Jira, which was <laughs> not fun, <laughs> but I know how to do it. I learned and that's important. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I mean, everything's a learning curve in these, these companies, but taking on bigger projects is how you, you like usually grow and it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I hope the conversation was helpful. It was great. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.